Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Platform Enterprise podcast, the show that provides a platform for enterprising individuals doing amazing things. I'm your host, Rachel Donald, and this week I spoke with Lisa Lux. Guys, do I have a treat for you. Lisa is a poet and an activist uh, living in Beirut, Lebanon, and she is just, I mean, wow, what an inspiring, articulate and thoughtful individual. The work that she is doing uh, with women, for women, on the ground in Beirut is absolutely incredible. Her poetry is amazing, uh, and I'll put links in the show notes where you can go and see some of her work. She has a book coming out next year with Outspoken Press. Um, and just generally, you know, this this was just a, an amazing conversation about so many fascinating topics um, of capitalism, of feminism, of creating spaces in today's world to do collective work, um, of sisterhood as an act of rebellion. That's kind of her the philosophy that, that she lives and breathes. I feel so fortunate um, that she came on the show and that I had the chance to speak with her and that I have the chance to share this interview with her. I have no doubt that you will be just as inspired as I am. Share it everywhere you can with everyone you can because this is the kind of conversation that needs to travel. (laughs) So uh, yeah, everybody, enjoy. I know you will, but really enjoy. Maybe grab a pen and paper and take some notes. (laughs) I've been um, following everything that you've been doing for, I mean, for years since I met you in London at the launch of Prowl House. Prowl, sorry. Um, oh, I've just been watching with with great admiration. Like, yeah. I mean, being a, a poet in this day. In fact, this should probably be part of the interview. But yeah, being a poet in this day and age, like that being who you are, what you do, and kind of carving your own path out in this in this world as that. I just think it's fucking amazing. So I'm so thrilled to be able to speak to you today. Thank you so much for for saying yes. <laughs> I, I'm I'm chuffed that you asked me. Like, and I was re- it was really nice to receive your message actually, because it's really nice somehow like to connect who who I was with who I am. Mm. And you kind of did that when you messaged. You know what I mean? Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, it's been a, a hell of a journey, and I've only seen you know just whatever it is that you you've let us see on the outside through you know social media. So I'm very excited to find out more about what's been happening over the past, what, five years? I, I guess, yeah. Five years since Launch of Pearl, yeah. Actually, actually, it was more like, it was more like six or seven. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a while. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Good. And you're living in, in Beirut, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'd really love to, to get into that as well. Um, because, to. oh yeah, because I mean, like with the, the media situation, you know, the international news is still just focused on, on fucking COVID and Christmas adverts and whatever. And, you know, there's obviously so much going on in, in Beirut that is just not being reported on and is not being broadcasted. So it'd be fantastic to, to have your insight about that as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I'd like to talk about that. That'd be great. Okay, awesome. Good. So why don't I, I'm just going to start you with, you know, basic kind of like 
Heidi, I'll introduce you obviously beforehand and everything. Cool. Um, but how would, how would you introduce yourself to the world, actually? How would I introduce myself to the world? Um, <laughs> the difficulty in this is I'm having a, I'm having a, a, mom, a moment, uh, or, or like by moment, I mean eight months, where I'm uh, really reassessing the nature of, of name. So in the very first instance of introducing myself, I find it <laughs> challenge because my very name I'm finding, uh, I'm finding uh, challenging because I don't know, I just feel like, like it should always be changing really. But I guess you were actually asking me like what, what, how I'd, what sentence I'd use, I guess a poet and essayist, uh, activist, um, feminist, anti-racist, activist um i think that yeah i think i think poet essayist uh feminist and anti-racist activist who believes in sisterhood as an act of resistance sisterhood as an act of resistance yeah yeah and why why is that that's powerful why why because I very much believe that the that the patriarchy, uh, the as Bell Hooks says, the the you know the interlocking systems of domination. So the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy is built on a foundation that is entirely uh, binary to the qualities of of sisterhood. And I think that if we can foster sisterhood economies, sisterhood care systems, sisterhood values, uh, and so on and so forth, then we will be fostering a, a genuine alternative to the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. That is, um, that is a message that seems should be at the heart of feminism, and yet was something that, that wasn't during the second wave of feminism. You know, embracing feminine qualities or empowering women to be women was kind of not what happened, which is maybe why we've ended up here. And we, st- we have all the same rights as, as men, women, but what is it to be a woman? And what is it to have women's rights? And what it is to kind of take up a space as, as a woman? This is a really good point because I, I think the reason why it wasn't, it wasn't the focus before is because there was very much, and, and, and there still is, but a, a deeply entrenched survival technique, which was survival by proximity. And mm-hmm. so to be more like the white male was to thrive and survive in society. And so you know, the, it's calling to mind words like girl boss. Yeah. <laughs> Shit's like that. <laughs> uh, and um, because inherent in that phrase as well is this, is this notion that, that she is trying to access capitalist patriarchy, but she is also still a child doing it. Because mm. I, 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 I don't think that there is a place for women in society yet. Hence why when we hit puberty, uh, and, and thereafter, we are sanitized, um, our forests are cut back, 
you know, our body hair, uh, and to be woman is, is to, is to be dirty, is to be mm. filthy. Cause it doesn't have a place in, 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 in capitalist patriarchy. So it, they kind of need to keep us small, need to keep us girl. And then she's allowed to be boss. It's like wearing her, wearing her dad's clothes or something, you know? And, uh, I think that, but I do think that this proximity, like this, 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 this taking on the role of, 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 um, of the patriarch has been the, the, the mode of survival for, for many. And you can say that in terms of, in terms of feminism, and you can say that in terms of race, uh, as well. And, and how kind of assimilation into the characteristics of the white male have been, have been the survival technique. So now I guess we're at this point where there is mass mobilization and there's an opportunity to, to foster an alternative to that, hopefully. It's very interesting and it, it makes me think of um, Isabel Laurie's book, The State of Insecurity, whereby she kind of explicates that democracy isn't democratic process as we understand it. It's actually internalizing the state, internalizing the police so that we self-govern uh, so that we don't need a, you know, somebody sitting on our backs doing it for us. And that survival by proximity, internalizing those uh, survival modes and assimilating, as you say, it sounds very, very similar. And in the same way, um, is it Angela McRobbie who talks about this in terms of the second wave uh, of feminism and how um, mass media... Uh, you know, let's call it what it is, propaganda, propaganda for the, for the capitalist patriarchy, uh, created this rhetoric of irony within, within feminism. So it was the idea that it was embarrassing to be, to be a feminist because why would you need to be a feminist anymore? Like, like we're all free and we, we, we have our rights now. And so there came like this very, like, you know, the sex positive, uh, uh, some aspects of the sex positive movement people argue are part of this like how women sexualize themselves because they have uh, come to believe that that is their sign of freedom but is it their sign of freedom or have you internalized his sign of freedom mm, mm, for you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I don't know where I stand on the sexuality thing. Like, honestly, like, so I'm not making it. I'm not making a, a concerted statement against that. But this is the McGrobbie argument, and it's very interesting. Exactly as you say, how we, yeah, we 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 internalize the the mechanisms that that oppress us, but in the most insidious ways. Mm-hmm. 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 And then how do you go about undoing that? I mean, when when it's pushed so far down, like into your DNA, that you start to replicate that which oppresses you how do you go about undoing that well I'm, I'm at a stage where I don't I don't know at all how because you start to realize how embedded it is in your language and once it's embedded in your language it's very hard to escape it unless you create a new language hmm. you know uh, for example for example when we talk about gender and there's a lot of languages that have uh, gendered words, you know. So the table uh, is, is a female word and, and, mm. and, and the mm. cup is a, is a male word. And so therefore, gender is so deeply entrenched in language, it's so hard to break out of it because everything has been set up in a binary. There's no space for neutrality, uh, even in the objects that we, that we touch. So then how is it, how is it escapable? And it, I, I do believe 
as 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 what's the word? I mean, as perhaps ambitious as it sounds, that only a new language can foster a new culture. Of course, because yes. even even when you think about time, you know, the, the, this there's uh, this thing uh, that is called language relativity and it's the notion of how our concept of time is built into our language so if, if a language doesn't have lineality then those who speak that language won't perceive lineality in time mm. you know um everything will be happening in the in the present tense or and, and, and when you think of if it's that deeply entrenched in time, because time is our perception, really, it's, our base, it's one of our baselines of our conception of reality, how deeply entrenched everything else is in, in language. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I found... Um, Sorry, I just correct myself. It's linguistic relativity, not language linguistic relativity. relativity. Yeah, yeah, to look it up. I found when I moved to France... Um, and learned uh, my first second language, <laughs> my first, my only second language. Let's <laughs> oh, keep it real. Um, <laughs> I, I was amazed actually at how embedded the culture was in the language. And that was sort of the first moment that I was like, oh my God, it, it is language that makes culture. It's what we speak it's the the baseline for how we understand and perceive the world and i genuinely believe that that gendered language in france in italy in spain in portugal that is why they're so fucking far behind sorry you know if you're listening and you're french or italian portuguese wherever but like i lived with you you're so far behind in terms of feminism like the the the, the gender disparity there i found truly to be shocking in terms of like the roles that women were still taking uh in terms of how women um each other in terms of how men spoke about women or thought about women um, and also, like, the whole idea to them as, like, non-binary. And I was working with young people, you know, I was working with 18-year-olds at university. Like, not non-binary, you know, a person who, is, who identifies as they and them and doesn't identify as man or woman. I mean, it was very, 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 very difficult for them to comprehend. And the only ones that had any inclination that that actually exists out in the world were those that were watching, I mean, Anglo media or Anglo shows or consuming yeah anglo material because that gave them a language and ultimately what what language does is it it, it doesn't and i'm lifting this and i can't remember from from which uh linguist or philosopher i'm lifting it from but that language doesn't describe reality it builds it yeah. and Hence why we have to consistently check our own language. Language is, is actually ultimately the, probably the greatest tool of revolution. So, and I completely agree with you. Where does the poet sit there then? It's a good time to be asking me that question because in the past 
three months and we're speaking now in in november 2020 and three months ago was the beirut blast and in the past three months i actually really fell out of love with poetry i found it surplus to requirement I found po- poets surplus to requirement. I think that I just saw too much suffering to feel that sitting and writing a poem was anything other than indulgent. Mm-hmm. And I became quite bitter. And it's only in the past three, four days that I've started to... Uh, reassess that bitterness or reapproach poetry with who I am now reshaped by what I've seen and who I've met and the pain that I've felt and I believe in only studying such things as political theory when you're directly putting it into practice. I don't believe in the ivory tower. I don't believe in sitting around and discussing theories and not putting them on the street. Mm. Now, you know, there's no point talking about things if you're not going to practice it. Mm. So in all this time that I had fallen out of love with poetry, still when I made my coffee in the morning, I recited Mahmoud Darwish to myself as I made my coffee and his lines about coffee. And so I started, I was talking to my editor the other day because she's waiting on a manuscript. That I was, you know, I've been, I've been resisting because I haven't really understood its, its point. And I spoke to her and I said, I need to find a, a, poet, a poetry that can be put into practice, like a political theory is put into practice. How can we find a poetry that can be applied to life? And so I noticed these moments where I read Mahmoud Darwish while I'm making my coffee and it affects the way that I make my coffee every morning when I make that coffee, like I make it like he writes. And, and I thought, I thought I want, I want to write that stuff. I mean, it's, that's a, that's a lofty statement. I want to, I want to write the Darwish stuff, but like, I want to write the, I want to write the poetry that can be applied in the kitchen, the poetry that can be applied in the streets, the poetry that can be applied on the car ride, or the poetry that can be applied to the sisterhood, the poetry that can be applied to a stranger who you meet after midnight who's crying in the cubicle next door, you know, the poetry mm-hmm. that can be applied. And how does it relate to what we were saying before about language as a, as a revolution? Poetry has uh, and always will be the, the rebel's art form because for many reasons, but let me only speak to the one that's relevant, which is that if language reorganizes reality, poetry is a language reorganized. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Mm. It's, it, its point and its purpose is to break apart the conventions of language in order to let something that wasn't being said slip through the crack once you've snapped uh, sentence structures, once you've snapped uh, grammar, once you've uh, used a word where you shouldn't use it uh, ordinarily or whatever, what happens then is you create these fractures in language. And through that, 
something that was unable to be said before seeps out. And so I think that the language, the poet is, a, is somewhat a, an abstract architect. An abstract architect. <laughs> the poet is an abstract architect of reality. That's, um, that's a hell of a responsibility. It's a hell of a responsibility, but I don't think one should take it too seriously. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know. No, no. I, I, I only say that because I, I, I really feel that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of ego and there's a lot of loftiness in, in, in poetry at the moment. And I don't want to say anything that adds to the, to the cause of the poet's uh, ego, <laughs> mm. <laughs> to be honest right now, because I think that... I think that the responsibility is in, in, in the writing. The responsibility is in the going out into the world. It's in being on the streets. It's in being on the ground. It's in being part of the rearranging of society and taking that to your work and to your page and then taking that back to the street and ricocheting between the two. So I don't think that the poet alone has an awful lot of responsibility. I think the poet activated the poet on the street the activist poet has a responsibility. And I, th I think that those two things shouldn't be always conflated because not everybody is writing to rearrange. I think we're in a very interesting moment in society. Well, I suppose every moment in society is an interesting one where we have this kind of mix of like... Uh, desire for revolution and for rearrangement and for rescripture, rescripting, uh, coupled with the very self-centric, self-promotional lifestyle or mode of being that, you know, a decade or so of living on social media has kind of generated. And I mean, we're seeing it in companies on a business level, like greenwashing, you know, making their products look greener in order to take advantage of this kind of bubbling up in social consciousness of, okay, we need to be more environmental, you know, just to make a buck. Um, and I certainly find this, what's the word I'm looking for? That there's a sense of friction often between what people say they're doing and then how it is, could perhaps be perceived and to what end, therefore, we are doing what we're doing, um, which is a long way of saying I'd like to hear more about what you have to say about ego in art form at the moment. I, I just want to speak to one part of what you just said, which is, and I believe that you're talking about the capitalization of our movements and yeah. they are co-opted feminism co-opted uh, environmentalism co-opted so many of the movements you know for racial justice co-opted yeah um and not not to evade your question and i will come back to it but i do just want to speak to the one movement that I believe has the opportunity not to be co-opted that, that I know of at the moment, um, and that is bringing it back to linguistics because of its lack of definition. 
and that's queerness and the queer movement. Mm. Why? Because the great mechanisms that be can only co-opt a movement that they understand. So goth was a subculture until it ended up in the mall, until it ended up in mm. the shopping centre, whether you're listening to this uh, in the UK or the US. <laughs> um, uh, but you can't put queer in a shopping mall. Why? Because you can't define queer in the first place to co-opt it. Because it, the very point of queerness it is not an umbrella term for LGBT. Queerness is the abst- abstraction of gender, the abstraction of sexuality, the abstraction of these things. And by its very nature, it is evasive. Mm-hmm. And it is something that you can't quite capture. And as long as people commit to queerness as the evasive, it could avoid being co-opted into the capitalist mechanisms and therefore the whole movement falling apart, you know? That's so fascinating and takes me back to, I can't remember what it was. It was something I read last year that kind of sparked this whole train of thought about women as um, a kind of embodiment of, of the void and yet also of the beginning of life. And therefore, the only thing that can break out of the, uh, any patriarchal binary that says two things coexist, but they coexist oppositionally. Like if you think about the womb, the womb is, I mean, the birthplace of life is where creation happens. And yet it can only happen because there is space. There is emptiness around it in order to happen. And so that abstraction there, that evasion, exactly as you say, of of fitting into, I don't know, any kind of structure or understanding. I mean, it, it really, really makes me think of that queerness as the evasion. Also, women as the kind of, oh, what was the word that I was using for this when I was writing about it last year? Um, oh, I can't remember. It was just absence. Women as absence. And yet yeah. the power of that absence. Like, I'm not playing by these rules anymore. I'm taking myself out of the game. Beautiful. I like that very much. And, and it brings me to a point where I really, I really believe that the the revolution will come from the mothers. The mo- the, like, 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 you know, and I keep saying the revolution, and, and by that I mean the revolutions, because I'll say it, and we'll, we'll need the multiplicity of revolutions, but uh, I don't think that there's anything more revolutionary than, than the mother, because it, it, in the origins of, of, of capitalism, the mother was, was exploited as the land was exploited the two things came hand in hand, as the indigenous were exploited, uh, as the black folk were exploited. And the, mother, the mother was one and she, and she stretched across them all because she was what we considered the earth. We called her the mother up until this point. And then she became exploited. The mother was present in all the communities, um, but she was exploited, uh, you know, well and, well and beyond the, the kind of peasant, the peasant men. And still, um, the, there's a book called um, History of the, of the World in Seven Cheap Things and, and a chapter called uh, cheap, cheap Care and in it they say Patel and Moore say that uh, we will only surpass capitalism if there, if there becomes and I'm completely paraphrasing here but basically a, a complete upheaval of, of 
care work and the care system, yeah. you know, and it's something that I'm working on now, which is creating a small feminist economy for unemployed migrant women in Beirut that is based on creating jobs for mothers to fulfill their care work. The work that, that they have been expected to do for free for all this time, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. God, I mean, sometimes when I think about the, the feminist movement, and I mean, I'm extremely grateful to live in a culture where we had feminist movements and where um, I can now benefit from that as, as I mean, <laughs> far more than many women in many other places. Um, but I'm like, God, wouldn't it have been amazingly revolutionary to, to pay mothers, actually? Drop all the other stuff, drop all the aesthetic stuff and just giving women who raise children a, a wage for the work that they're doing. Because I mean, you're forming the next generation. You're forming potentially little citizens. How is that not the most celebrated job in the fucking world? How is that not the most important job well, in the world? Quite frankly, the most valuable means of production, to use Marx's terminology, the most yeah. valuable means of production, because she's creating the laborers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She's creating the workers. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Give mm-hmm. the bitch some cash. Give her some food. <laughs> What's up with you? Give her her rice. What is wrong with you? <laughs> completely, completely. Give her, give her her bloody juice. Right. I mean, for, for any, you know, for any parent, you know, to try and sort of be gender neutral about you know for, for any parent that, that stays at home and looks, looks after their children I mean give give them a wage but like everything about motherhood as that has somehow been like sidelined as it's kind of like it's a side hustle of life now of modern life mm-hmm. motherhood in terms of you know somebody dictating um the time that you get off if you're lucky enough to live in a country where you get time off work to look after your kids um the fact that mothers are separated from their children so early on even though neurologists have the data that so like a baby needs to be with its primary caregiver for the first six months of life day in day out on its skin otherwise there's going to be imbalances and like neurologically like we know all this um and yet it's still not still not being picked up by because it doesn't because it, because it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if we're traumatized. It doesn't matter if we're unhappy families. None of that matters. What matters is that we can sit at a desk and we can work from nine till six now. It's no longer nine till five. <laughs> Some songs went out of uh, age badly. Like it's now definitely nine till six, nine till seven, nine till ten if you can, you know? Yeah. And it doesn't matter how we are. You know, that's why care is... is, is <laughs> absolutely radical yeah oh, but it but it is mm. i met a woman uh, a couple of weeks ago who is a caregiver to um to to handicap people mm. and she she's 26 she studied law and this is what she does and that blew my fucking mind you know, she, if she'd said that she went, you know, she was an engineer on the space station, that would have been less mind-blowing to me because I was like, wow, 
you started down that you went out and you got like you know that necessary qualification that was going to give you a certain quality of life or a certain place in society or whatever and that, like you look after people and you're young as well like you've clicked so early on how important that is you've managed to be self-sacrificial in a way so early on in like mind-blowing but i'd 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 be asking her also like how she can bring these things together because we need the lawyers as mm. also as the caregivers but we need them to be sat in the same room we need to be able to have somebody to explain to the other mothers the other single mothers uh the other uh, migrant mothers uh, and, and so on and so forth. The foster mothers, the, the mothers who's lost their children, do you have to explain to them what their rights are? What are their rights? You know? Who, who, do you know what your rights are? Me? Yeah. As, no, of, no. Of course you don't. Don't no. know what their fucking rights are. <laughs> no. Like, we need to be having regular meetings where we understand what our rights are. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And what yeah. happens if they're breached and where we mm-hmm. go with them. You know? That, Okay, so the, the um, podcast guest I had on last time is an asylum lawyer in the United States who switched practice to asylum when Trump was elected because she was like, right, this is where we're going to need fucking help. <laughs> and she was saying that with the women that, sh- that, that she works with, she has to explain to them, no, 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 people aren't allowed to rape you here. No, you, your husband isn't allowed to have sex with you just when he wants to have sex with you. That's also called rape. No, people aren't allowed to do this to you. No, you are allowed to call the police. No, you are allowed to report it. She was like, I have to explain them fundamental rights. But the, I mean, you're saying that that's to, to, to uh, women seeking asylum, but sis, that's to everyone. I know, I know natives of England who don't know that it is rape if their partner has sex with them against their will. If, yeah. You know? Yeah. So it, it's not a nation-based thing. It's not a nationality-based thing. It's not an upbringing-based thing. It's a, it's a it is a global uh, patriarchal learning that you that you are a, a submissive to him. However, that yeah. manifests, and you can feel that you're a bad bitch in the street, you know. But uh, but you have to catch these the, these moments somehow of submission. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How how would I, I want to talk more then about this um, feminist economy that you're creating for mm. care work? Can you can you just can you explain a little bit more about like how you put ideology into practice? Because as you're saying, instead of just reading political theory, being out in the streets and doing something about it, I think that that is a bridge that people I really really struggle to cross because a it's fucking hard and b I mean theory often is not written to be put into practice. So can you explain a little bit more about that? For sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll loop in uh, poetry as well, because it might call answer to a question that I feel I've heard of yours earlier. But also, <laughs> you know that I've been, I've been writing about, um, not just feminism, but I have a poem called Voice of the Earth. And it's one that I still come back to. A lot of poems I, I let go. I let them kind of fall away like dead skin cells at some point. But this is one that I, I continue to carry forward because it, it does feel that it continues to have effect and mean something where I take it. It's very much about the, the mother um, and, 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 and the mother earth, but, you know, interpret it as you will. Okay, so, so this is step one where I feel that poems sometimes, the reason why they should be um, caution of ego in artistry is because the art didn't necessarily come from you 
sometimes it's something for you to follow. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So <clears throat> following this um, and, and following this belief in, in feminist economies and, and wanting to see feminist economies, I started a master's program studying anthropology and, and cultural politics so that I could understand better financial systems, understand better the cultural systems at play and therefore have the language and, 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 and the, you know, all of the theory and all of the, 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 the knowledge that can help me understand how to create an alternative. So mm-hmm. if I can understand what, how the, all these ones were set up, they can understand the fundamental basics of uh of economies so studying uh capitalism and studying the origins of of early capitalism and understanding that you can't have a thorough practiced resistance without being hyper aware of the wider context of the situation that you're trying to navigate. So what do I mean by that? I could see, for example, um, I don't want to ramble too much, but I do feel like giving you maybe the, mm, please do. the, 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 the bigger picture. So you can, you, can see for, you can see, for example, that in your community that there is a, that there is a need and you can try and meet that need. Um, but you will, it will be like a bottomless uh, uh, attempt where you'll keep having to retry to fulfill that need because the system around you is fundamentally uh, uh, broken and, you know, what won't... Um, it's creating that need. Right. Broken the broken system made the need in the first place exactly so yeah. you're gonna to have to continue to continue to create it and we're and we're not built as such so what you have to do instead is understand why and how the system created that need in order to from the ground up make a very 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 thorough assessment of, right. of, of how that gap can can be filled so what we're doing is i i i um, in Beirut, after, after the blast, and even before the blast, just during the financial crisis, there was, and, and after corona and everything, there is so much unemployment. And there's the kafala system here, which means there is a lot of migrant workers who didn't particularly choose to be here. You know, it's a modern slave trade. And who find themselves without work, uh, without their papers to get home, uh, without um, access to rights. Um, and I meet a lot of women who don't have enough to feed their baby. In fact, as soon as we finish this podcast, I've got to, I've got to drive, um, out and drop off, um, some food and diapers to, to a woman who's about to get evicted and, and, and go and speak to her landlord and go and sort that situation out. But doing this kind of thing isn't, isn't sustainable. I can't keep finding each individual woman and supplying her with using international donations that I, I kind of like gather in from the, the feminist community to keep supporting these women because one, it's getting to winter and donations dry up as Christmas comes and, and what have you. Two, it's getting to winter, which means needs are more dire than ever. It's cold and it's raining. 
Yeah. And, and, and three, nobody wants to be stuck in the helper helpy paradigm. Nobody yeah. wants that. Like at the forefront of our feminist praxis needs to be autonomy, independence, you know? So how do you recreate this feeling of autonomy and independence uh, for these women, for these single mothers? You create jobs that allow them to work within their community and responding to their own needs, okay? So I'm mm -hmm. meeting women who were like, we were down at the, at the, at the, at the, at the protest at the Kenyan sit-in and she was like, you know, this protest really is good because I can bring my child down and it's like daycare because there's so many women here to look after the, my son. Mm, okay. And so it's like, okay, so, you know, daycare is very, very expensive. So why don't we create a daycare initiative where we connect women in their neighborhood so we're not moving into a neighborhood and, and, and opening a center up because that will have direct economic implications on the community around it then so actually we'll operate from home uh, small networks of women where they will put themselves forward and some will do the child minding and that will be paid and some you know there'll be uh, women who come in and clean the house after that's been done and that will of course be paid there'll be a cook and we'll connect them with an organic farmer outside of uh, the city a small organic farmer so that we don't have that alienation from from the means of production mm -hmm. to, the, to the consumer and they can go and get to select their vegetables and all of that is is paid and they're there for creating a a, a small economy with subsistence subs uh, yeah subs uh, sustenance and um and care at the at the forefront of it and autonomy at the forefront of it mm. and within that we have weekly we'll have uh, monthly check-ins and uh, assessing what needs are bringing in lawyers from um, uh, some of the activist legal firms here and getting them to come in and break down like what people's rights are and uh, what these women's uh, rights are and uh, all the things uh, i mentioned before and create skillshare um, opportunities and just internalize because I think if we're consistently asking uh, you know uh, bringing it back to, to to the common capitalist workplace as we know it in in Britain if you're common you know continue to ask I want to earn the same amount as him I, I want equal pay bitch he ain't gonna give it to you <laughs> it's been this long like you have to just create a small economy between yourselves like that's their economy. They built that economy for themselves. I don't want to, I don't want a piece of their economy. I yeah. want a piece of our economy. I yeah. want to know what it would look like to have a feminist currency. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's one of the um, sort of fallacies of, of modern or of today's feminism, especially when we see, okay, I'm going to use the word empowered loosely here, but like empowered women, i.e. women that have, we have the right to, to stand up and to talk and, you know, we're not going to come under danger for that. We have space to do that and to still be knocking on doors mm. 60 years later being like, I, I want this, I want this. Like, girl, go get it. Just go make it. Go set up your own business and imply, employ only women and pay, you know, have like a, a minimum wage in your company of like 30K or whatever it is. Just go and do, stop fucking asking. They haven't given it to us. Just go and, oh, go, go and get into parliament. Oh, but it's difficult. Yes, it is. But that's why you have to go and do it because it's never going to get any easier. Like it's really, really time to stop. And it's like this, this kind of culture of sort of 
self-victimization in a sense where it's like now isn't the time to still and this is my personal opinion now isn't the time to still be saying well i'm a victim of this and i'm a victim of this and victim of that that isn't actually going to change anything now is the time especially in the cultures in which we have the right to is to stand up and be like well i'm not going to be a victim of that anymore because i'm going to go and do x or i'm going to go and do y i'm going to band together and we are going to create whatever it is that we need I, 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 I agree with you on the we. I think the, the, the points before that become difficult because there are many limitations. And I think as long as we always operate, and this is why I said sisterhood is an act of resistance, because mm. I don't think we can do it on our own. I really don't think that we can do it on our own. I can't do it on my own. You know, like this initiative is working yeah. within a cooperative of other feminist anti-racism activists, you know, yeah. like and we, co- we build a cooperative and we move and we make decisions together. And there again is a dismantling of, of ego uh, yeah. and, and I and, 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 and heroism because you can't do it on your own. Capitalism taught you to be in competition and it's difficult. And I don't believe in parliament. I am a... Uh, political anarchists and I do believe in small democracies I do Mm -hmm. believe in uh, I don't believe in a mass governing body I don't think it works I I don't think that there is an example that I can call to mind of mass governing working and if it did and if it was uh, you know for for the people and if it was for the benefit of those under that governance like um, a lot of the leaders of the of the non-aligned movement of the mid 20th century though it ended up being assassinated because uh because the colonial powers that be will will not allow that to happen mm-hmm. you know so i don't think that mass governing works i think that we have to move small i think that we have to move in in packs uh, in and i don't know i guess that i guess that speaks to a to a to, to things happening in, in terms of collectivism. And I don't know that I necessarily just believe that, that all change will happen in, in collectivism, but, but I think that enough pockets of it will create a cultural impact. And I haven't yet worked out how I feel about national transformation, to be honest, uh, and where it goes from there. I just know fuck parliament. I just know that that's how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I have to, like, I do, I do completely agree that, this sort of total farcical pantomime of pretending that millions a group of people that are millions and millions and millions that come from different cultures and different races and have different needs and desires and wants and rightly so uh, can be governed by a, a small party of people that only reflect their own interests because that's the culture that's been built around that institution yeah and when you see uh, communities kind of taking more control of their own situations and of their own circumstances and empowering themselves and each other to create systems that directly fulfill the needs of their own. Um, I mean, ma- magic things happen mm. when people do that. And it, it really is amazing to see. I've, I think I've spoken to you in the past about this um, society in Athens called communitism, mm. which I think <laughs> says it all in the name. <laughs> And um, they are really, really working very hard to provide essentially a roof and four walls for as many different um, projects and people um, and democracies as they can. And it's incredibly revolutionary and incredibly hard. I'm sure you find that as well. It's very, very, very hard to do. 
Mm. I mean, nothing's in our, the current world is, is set up for that. No, it's not. And, and nothing in the current world is set up for creating space in your life to be able to carry these initiatives out. Yeah. So I think that it does become very wearisome as well. Um, which is again, why I think it needs to happen in, in collectives uh, for it to be, to be efficient in any way. How do you find it on a, on a personal level? Because this is, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, were you, were your parents activists or has this been very much a journey of self-learning for you? It's been a journey of self-learning for sure. And and I'm not quite sure, <laughs> it's a good question, not sure, quite sure how I got here, except for being surrounded by really admirable women. And I always think about that question, you know, on Twitter that, that circulates, that what radicalised you? <laughs> <laughs> um, And this is a very difficult question because I, because I, I really don't know the answer and I, and I haven't, I haven't thought about it much at all, like how exactly I became who I was. But I, I guess that there's always been that thread, which is something that you illuminated to me when you contacted me and had known, had been following since Prowl you know, um, that it's been present and we just learn and we grow. And around four years ago, I started surrounding myself more and more with, with women activists, women non-binary queer activists. And just felt the power of that collective and then moved to Beirut uh, and, you know, we went through the revolution and I think there's been so many uh, opportunities for awakening in these past, in this past year, collectively, even Corona opportunity for awakening in terms of our capitalist sensibilities. Uh, Black Lives Matter, an opportunity to awaken in terms of our anti-racism and multiple revolutions happening around the globe, a chance for us to reassess our political ideology. I think that there has been multiple portals of of awakening happening at a pretty accelerated pace. So I feel everybody, I don't know, I like to think that everybody's become activated somewhat and it probably depends how close to again proxi- proximity this word proximity but how close to how close to the pain and ache you found yourself you know i'm not sure that that answers your question at all it's <laughs> oh, a very very interesting point either way i mean i think as well you know the question that sometimes comes to my mind is how much more pain and suffering can we endure 
without you know before we let go because it seems like in terms of every single movement um the environment is such an easy example like the planet is literally warming up um countries are getting hotter and hotter and are going to be unsustainable there's we're going to have climate refugees very soon we can see the ice caps melting um we can see forest fires every year and yet we're not stopping we're not stopping our, our mode of living um with oh god you know black lives matter that was such an exciting moment actually you know to to see those protests taking place around the world and to see people standing up and they continue to stand up because standing up isn't just about that one time act it's about staying up right as you know the world comes at you um and yet you know what kind of what what institutional changes have there been since the since that series of moments that illuminated even further this severe racism still at play almost everywhere around the world how much more pain and suffering is it going to take before people come to well i feel that when you speak of the environment and you speak of responsibility how much how we continue to allow this to happen you know that environmental change isn't going to alter whether you as an individual recycle though i urge you to <laughs> but whether you can lobby whether mm. we can actually uh, you know lobby and 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 what have you and and there's there's pain and there's anger in the world and i believe that anger and i speak of this from a feminist perspective and I, but i do believe that our anger can be transmuted into a really productive force uh, anger maybe is the is the state of being that creates internal turmoil but outrage is gold dust because outrage is a driving force <laughs> you can't vision new possibilities without being outraged first mm. so i think as long as we all consider ourselves you know alchemical and consistently transmuting as often as possible our own pain and suffering and outrage and that of those around us into productive drivers mm then then actually the more the more pain and suffering that we gather like almost we we harness it somehow we can harness it in and and use it as our as our horsepower i'm not saying i want people to hurt i'm saying that we already do mm. and so let us let us do something with it i want to touch briefly on and i think that this is an, an important question given the situation of the the gender conversation we have used a lot the word women in this i think exclusively we've talked to women 
um, you talk of, of sisterhood, you're working, you're creating a feminist economy. What would you say to any manless thing that might feel alienated um, from this conversation or cut out from it? I'd, this, is a, this is a very good question. How do we... Did you say manless? No, man. Oh, man. Yeah. How, what, do you, what would you say to any man listening that might feel um, alienated or isolated from our conversation? To be honest with you, to be honest with you, he's not my concern. He's really not my concern. Like I, 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 I welcome him in to listen hmm. and to take notes. But for him to feel alienated, it's, it's not for you to feel that you have a place actually right now because you've had a place. And, and, and you need to understand what your place is and you need to do your studying and you need to speak to the men around you and you need to, you need to figure out your role. I can't, I can't manage that for you as well. Mm. I, I have to manage what I can focus on and he is not my responsibility. That was very succinct and very well put. Absolutely. Like we all, I think, especially um, God, I mean, you know, the work that you do, having, you know, moved to Beirut and gotten involved with the women that you are and create, creating a, a new economy, creating jobs for people, getting more and more involved on the streets. I mean, like your story is, is very much an example that, that we can all do it. We can all educate ourselves and we can all do what we need to do in our bit of the world. And it, it's a job. What was the word we used before? Self-learning. And so, yeah, it's not a place to feel included or excluded from, from people's groups. It's about providing space for what needs to happen in every individual community. Put it this way. I wouldn't have liked somebody to make a space for me just because I felt alienated. I had to create that, that own space. You want a seat at the table, go find the wood, go carve your chair and come back and find a place to put it. Fantastic. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Why the hell not? As you say, outrage, it sparks. Lisa, you've got, um, you've got a, book coming out right a collection of poetry coming out can you tell us a little bit more about that I certainly can so I'll, I'll, I'll first tell you that the I had a collection uh, a chapbook so a small small collection of poems out this year called trust your outrage and every single person who benefits financially from that thing existing in the world is woman or non-binary so awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll say that and then I'll also say that the next collection that I'm working on for Outspoken Press is called Fetch Your Mother's Heart and it is an exploration of the symbiotic relationship between tenderness and violence and how longing uh, leads to grief. Longing is a type of grief when we talk about it in an intimate way, when we talk about it in a fam family uh, setting when we talk about it in the social setting and when we talk about it in the political the grief and and, and longing can be one of the same thing and and so it's kind of a, a exploration of of these two states that we see as disparate 
but that actually seem to be homed in the same place within our bodies. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, why have you chosen to work with Outspoken Press? Because for 21, 22, yeah, 21, 22, uh, Outspoken Press will be a women's run press. Joelle Taylor is taking the helm as editor and everybody published is woman on non-binary. Fantastic. Okay, thanks. And when will that be out and available for people? So due to Corona, it's been pushed back, but I believe now it's going to be April 2020. Okay. Uh, 2021? 2021, 2021. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time traveling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, April 2021. Okay, awesome. And is there any place that um, people can help like get involved like you said you collect donations from the international feminist community is there a place that people can find you they can look you up they can get involved and and help in any way yeah i'll firstly add i also collect donations from men so if that's how you want to find your seat at the table then please do feel free to donate (laughs) donate donate um i mean obviously feminist does not just mean women because men are feminists too obviously so yeah of course that's that's a thesis but yes and uh, they can they can find me on social medias um and i post on there when i'm opening up windows to accept donations so i'm on instagram under luxy l-u-x-x-y underscore lux l-u-x-x and i'm on twitter and they're really the main ones that i function on okay okay fantastic well i will put links in the show notes as well um for people to find find you and learn more and get involved and uh, so to finish up i always ask is there someone that you would like to platform oh yes one person mm-hmm. you want one person i mean not necessarily but if you if you feel so inclined, I mean, platform as many as you can, right? <laughs> All right. I, I, I start with Dana Ash. Dana Ash, a cultural activist, and uh, my sister here in, uh, in Beirut. And she's uh, really a powerful, powerful community tool for all of us. And she runs Haven for Artists. She's also a poet and a writer. She's also Aries like me. So don't expect any other type of rhetoric than, uh, <laughs> than this kind of bad attitude that you've heard from me. Expect the same kind of shit. Uh, <laughs> and I, I really, recommend, really recommend her. And uh, I'd also like to recommend um, a poet from the UK who's also getting published by Outspoken Press in the next two years. Uh, her name is um, Safia, Safia Kinshasa, and she is an impeccable poet, an impeccable writer. And I'd really like to hear what uh, conversation she'd have with you. Okay, amazing. Well, Lisa, thank you so fucking much. What a conversation! what a conversation this has been enlightening and actually you know i hope to have you back on in the future to continue this i'd love to thank you thank you so much for inviting me absolute pleasure thank you 
You can find the link to Lisa's chapbook, Trust Your Outrage, in the show notes, as well as her social media links, website, and the link to Ella Beirut. If you can make a donation to Women on the Ground, please don't hesitate to reach out to Lisa. You can find her contact information on her website. You can also find Platform Enterprise on the socials and sign up to our podcast newsletter at podcast.platformenterprise.com. We would love to know what you think, so please leave us a review and leave five stars if you want to support the podcast. It means so much that you're listening. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.